Very good morning to you. It's lovely to see you all here this uh, wonderfully sunny morning. Well done for being here. Uh, well done for actually getting in. Um, did you notice the signs? Did you notice the... Okay, did you? I mean, that's good. So, um, so just, just to give you some context for those... Um, you know, the whole idea of church is that you're sort of welcoming and open to everybody and um, visitors and people of no faith or all faith or whatever can come along. And we realized actually that possibly we were hiding our lights under a proverbial bushel and Kate had invited somebody, a friend of hers, who is serving up at Lambeth Palace and she came a few weeks ago and, and the Google kind of thing took her to the flats on Privet Drive and she kind of eventually found her way into the building and said like, it took me about an hour to find my way in and we thought that's probably not very good is it um, so uh, we thought let's have some signs made and then somebody else mentioned you know like all your signs just say like SWLV or Southwest London Vineyard and um, it's like yeah, what's wrong with that and it's like well maybe it would be good if you mentioned that you're a church it's like, oh, yeah. So, I mean, we've only been in this business for like 30 odd years, and we've only been meeting here since 1992. So, uh, we now have signs that say Southwest Island Vineyard Church. Um, yeah, I know, who knew? Um, yeah, so, you know, we'll pick up this kind of church planting or church leadership business in a couple of years' time. Um, so, that's, so, they're now there. Uh, however, um, the next thing is, can you actually get into the building? So, uh, just so that you understand what's happening, there was a break-in at the school a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they have become very, very security conscious and very security minded. And so they are insisting, as of this week, that the gates are closed all the time, uh, which is a little bit of a pain. Especially as when you buzz on the gates, there's nobody on the thing to let you in. So, uh, first of all, if that happens over the next few weeks, could you please remember to buzz the gates, okay? And then hopefully someone will let you in. Unfortunately, this gate is broken, and so you can buzz until you're blue in the face and you won't get in. What we really need, you're going to love this, we need three people to person the gates each week. So uh, to make it really, really easy so that we don't have to lock the gates and so that we can welcome as many people as possible in, ideally what we need is three volunteers each week to come and stand by the gates and uh, then we can have the gates open. So uh, we're going to be on holiday for the next couple of weeks, so don't tell us uh, in your droves that you're keen to be on this new rotor that we've just established. Um, there is biblical precedent, I think Psalm 27, I would rather be a gatekeeper in your house Uh, then spend a moment elsewhere and so you would all be you people who are standing at the gates and welcoming in uh, the people would be in very very good company and I'm sure there will be reward in heaven for you there might even be reward from us <laughs> uh, so because we're going to be away will you talk to Mike he'd love to hear from you and just inundate him with emails this week saying please how could I possibly be on a gatekeeper rotor every week over the summer and into the autumn and the winter so that um, I can welcome those people who are wanting to come towards Jesus? Just throwing out there. So that's what's happening. We're working with them to see if we can negotiate a slightly different approach. But in the meantime, just so that you're aware.
Today we're going to carry on, we're going to finish off uh, the series that we've been doing on why justice. So uh, in your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter uh, 9. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, if you've been around here, there are kind of two words, it's a phrase that keeps cropping up all over the place uh, again and again uh, in the Bible, in the context that we've been talking about, and those two words are justice and righteousness. It's a sort of a phrase, justice and righteousness, and, and as we've been looking at it, it looks like they crop up when the Bible's talking about and describing a just society, which uh, when we look at it through the lenses of the scriptures, when we look at it through the lenses of the Bible, it, it comes across as being pretty clear what that means. In that, according to the Bible, a just society is a society that takes care of the vulnerable, and specifically those, that group of people that theologians have called the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the poor, uh, and the migrant. And as we reflect on why justice matters, you know, not only to God, not only as reflected in the scriptures, but why it should matter for us as followers of Jesus and as the church here, uh, we thought maybe it would be helpful again, I mean, I did this, I think, during Lent, but really just as a, a, a whistle-stop tour of the narrative arc of the scriptures and, and how, how you can see as you look at the narrative arc of the scriptures that it, it ties in all the way through and inextricably to justice. And if you go right back to the very beginning, if you trace it right back to the start, the, the whole centrality, the whole significance of justice and why justice is such a key theme and why it matters so much, it's all rooted and grounded in this idea of humanity as being made in the image of God. As far as the Bible's concerned, when you look at what the scriptures say, the, the biblical vision of, of, of what we as humans are, uh, humans uniquely are made in the divine image. We represent the divine image. Humanity is meant to be, you and I are made to be and designed to be a, a reflection of our creator, of God. We're appointed to be responsible. We're appointed to steward and to rule over the world and the earth and its resources in a way unlike anyone else, anything else could imagine. The biblical vision of justice and right relationships, these things that we've been looking at over these past uh, few weeks, and, and really all the way through all the talks that we've been doing over the last, this last year on justice. Underneath it all, the kind of bedrock and the foundation of it all is what's taking place in the first couple of pages and first uh, couple of chapters of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It all comes out, and you've heard this verse being used as a refrain all the way, all the way through these talks, really. It comes out in Genesis 1.26 where it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then it goes on in verse 27 and says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So humanity is made in the image of God. You and I are made in the image of God. And this is incredibly important. This is really, really important for us to grasp. But where this all really kicks in, actually, is, is in around Genesis chapter 9, which is quite interesting, because this is where the, the sacred value, if you like, the sanctity of human life 
as made in the image of God, really kind of kicks in and really comes to the fore. So let's have a look at Genesis chapter 9. This is in uh, verse 1, Genesis chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants. I now give you everything. Uh, so uh, you don't have to be vegan uh, anymore. Um, at least not because the Bible tells you so. All right? I mean, you can be vegan for whatever reason that you like. But if you're being vegan because you think that's what the Bible says, you don't need to do that, just as an aside. Um, you carnivores have the green light from the Bible. It might not be very good for the environment, but um, okay. And then it goes on, it says, uh, verse 4, but you must not eat meat that has lifeblood in it. Okay, so I think this is probably where the, the kosher thing kicks in. And then it goes on in verse 5, and it says, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Verse 6, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So Genesis chapter 9, Noah is kind of getting recommissioned as a, as a sort of a type of Adam. You know, the mandate that was given to Adam uh, in Genesis chapter 1 is now repeated here in Genesis chapter 9. And, and the mandate that was given to, to Adam now gets handed on to Noah. And it, it's sort of as, as though after the flood, it's like creation gets a reset. Uh, creation, the creation narrative has been renewed and, and Noah is, is blessed. He gets the same commission as humanity did back in, uh, on page one. Except there are a couple of different things, different emphases here. One of them uh, is around this thing about not, being, not needing to be vegan anymore. So there's now provision made for eating animals. Um, but there is a subclause which says effectively, don't eat humans. You can eat the animals, but don't eat people. This is sort of what's being said. Uh, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God um, has God made mankind. So if a human dies, someone's going to get held responsible. What we're saying is there's this accountability now. And I don't know, maybe it came out as a result of Cain and Abel. Maybe it just came out as a result of Adam and Eve's choices. But the point is now the killing of a human being, the shedding of human blood is a really big deal because, verse 6, for in the image of God has God made mankind. And so what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 9 is the value, the value of human life is seen as having this sacred and this transcendent dignity. Um, and that, you know, if you're going to take another human life, you are wronging God. Uh, just as an aside, you're also wronging God, you know, when you harm your animals, uh, your animal, uh, remember the proverb, uh, verse uh, chapter 12, it says the righteous care for their animals. And, and why is that important? It's important because all of this, everything that we're talking about, everything that's saying here in Genesis 9, um, it's, it's all about God's creation and taking care of and respecting and stewarding properly everything that he has made. 
And so whilst uh, from Genesis 9, you know, it would seem that though uh, we should care for our animals, we can, if we choose to, use them for food, uh, which is a shift from Genesis chapter 1, uh, Genesis chapter 1 diet, uh, when all that was really on offer were um, seed-bearing plants and trees that had uh, fruit with seed in it. That was our food from Genesis chapter 1. Um, but from what this point on, uh, animals may be on the menu, humans aren't. Just in case you weren't aware, I'm just trying to, you know, I'm not teaching you to suck eggs, but the reason they're not is because they're made in the image of God. And this matters for us as we think about justice, you know, because these are sort of uniquely Jewish and Christian uh, traditions. Um, they're also unique in sort of the history of human civilization. A lot of Greek philosophers. Um, would have argued that there are some humans who are more valuable than others. You know, that by nature, some humans were meant to be slaves. They, they were designed, they were built, they were created to be slaves and to be ruled by what would have been described as more reasonable or more rational individuals. You know, and that philosophical framework still very much exists to this day, and it just isn't in line and in keeping with the scriptures. You know, the idea that all humans are created equal except the ones who aren't. And so this idea that's set out on page one of the Bible of humanity as being made in the image of God, the inherent value of every single human being, this is a significant contribution of uh, the Hebrew Scriptures to human history. And it's essentially the concept of mishpat. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks, of, of justice. It's the, 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 the concept of rights that lay the foundation for everything that is to come. And what it's saying is that this idea that humanity is made in the image of God is the place from which, out of which, all of the mishpat and the tzedakah, the righteousness and justice, comes that human life is, is sacred and precious. Every single human life. We don't get to discriminate. We don't get to choose. We don't get to pick which ones are more precious than the others. And so, therefore, for all of us, in the places and the arenas in which we find ourselves, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our relationships, there are going to be people whose mishpat is neglected, whose image-bearing value is neglected and overlooked. And as followers of Jesus, especially having heard all these talks on justice and, and, and now take justice very seriously, what we're going to do is we're going to try and notice that and try and be part of whatever solution is needed to change and to remedy that situation for people. So these are the foundation stones, if you like, that you and I are made in the image of God. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. You are made in the image of God and are therefore incredibly and uniquely precious. And then from here on, just going back through the narrative arc of the scriptures, here on the kind of the narrative through the rest of the Bible is, is kind of familiar territory to many of us. And, and so um, what happens is, you know, when our ancestors, when, when human beings, when Adam and Eve redefine uh, good and evil in Genesis chapter 3, you know, they take the knowledge of good and evil and take that into their own hands. And what happens when we do that, when we take that into our own hands, the result of that, the outcome of that, is that we tend to create societies and communities where I or we in that situation assert the mishpat or the rights of me and my group at the expense of the mishpat or the rights 
of you and your group. That's just kind of human history. And if you look at the chapters of Genesis from chapter 3 through to 11, that's kind of what happens. You just see this terrible, terrible spiral down through those chapters from Genesis 3 um, to 11. And then what happens is God singles out a family. Uh, Genesis 18, God says, okay, surely Abraham, he's picked out, he's picked on Abraham, he's a righteous man, surely Abraham will become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? By doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I've promised. We're back to that phrase, doing what is right and just. That's, again, it's our old friends, Mishpat and Zedekar, righteousness and justice. And what's the promise that he's talking about, God's talking about here? The promise is that through Abraham, all nations will be restored to divine blessing. And, and Abraham's descendants will be as countless and as numerous as the sand on the shore, etc. And, and how is this all going to happen? Well, it's going to come about through this family living uh, among the nations, but they're going to live among the nations with a completely different value system. They're going to live in a completely different way to, to that of the culture around them or wherever it is they happen to find themselves, be that Egypt or Babylon or Assyria or London or wherever. And all of it, that difference, is all going to come about through righteousness and justice. And what happens then is really, just in case they don't have any idea of what this is going to look like in practice as a nation, what happens to them as a nation a few chapters later is they get to be the recipients of God's own righteousness and justice when he redeems them from slavery in Egypt. Because what happens is, as you know from... Um, Genesis 11 or 18, when Abraham gets kind of appointed and anointed, um, at the end, by the end of Jan Genesis, the nation, they become the vulnerable. The ones who are supposed to be showing justice and righteousness to the vulnerable have themselves become the vulnerable. They become that quartet of the vulnerable, and they themselves are now in need of justice and righteousness. And it's through the Exodus narrative, second book of the Bible, um, through the Exodus narrative that God shows them what righteousness and justice for the vulnerable and for the oppressed is actually supposed to look like. And then, by way of a sort of an aid memoir um, in the book of Exodus, God gets Moses to write down what it should all look like. And he does it on these great big stones, which they carry around with them under their arms, you know, so they don't, they don't forget. And so what happens is they get given the law. And the law is supposed to be the embodiment of, you guessed it, Mishpat and Tzedakah, righteousness and justice. And the idea is that through Abraham, through his family, and then on through the nation of Israel, uh, God's people were to be a people that did and do Mishpat and Tzedakah. And all the nations would look on them and say, wow, like you guys have got this running country thing nailed. Like you are amazing. Like what's the secret? The secret, oh, okay, okay. It's about Mishpat and Zedekah. It's like about this, this God thing, this theocracy thing. Okay, okay. Um, spoiler alert, Israel doesn't do it. 
And so enter stage left, the prophets. Um, by the time we get to the prophets, um, as well as you know, pointing out all the way that the Israelites are perpetrating injustice. So instead of becoming this example nation of, of how to embody justice and righteousness, they actually become uh, perpetrators of injustice um, themselves. But the prophets come along and they've got all this kind of uh, classic doom and gloom and warning to repent. You know, and what that means is like, you know, stop it. Stop all this injustice. And they wave their bony fingers and stroke their long white beards right, and say, if you don't turn from your ways, you wicked, wretched people, you know, you will end up being whisked off into captivity or something for like 70 years. And you could end up sitting by the rivers of Babylon and weeping and moaning and writing songs for Boney M. Um, alongside all of that, right, so there's all the doom and gloom that comes to the prophets, but alongside that, there are these really clear threads and these glimmers of hope as the prophets talk over and over and over again about this new king who's coming. And there's these pointers, you know, there's a king coming, there's a king coming, there's this excitement, there's this hope that there is one who will come who will lead the nations in truth and justice. There's this uh, Old Testament scholar, um, Bruce Waltke, I think his name is. Uh, I think he's sort of in his 90s now, if he's still alive. I think he's still alive. Uh, he wrote, like, um, amongst many other things, a, a great big tome on the book of Proverbs. Uh, and he said this, he said, when we read the book of Proverbs, this is what we see about the righteous and the wicked. There's a lot of stuff in the Proverbs about the righteous and the wicked. And um, he said this, he said, the righteous, and we often misunderstand it in the Proverbs. It, it doesn't feel, it doesn't sit very easily for us. We're like, I don't understand this. Like, the righteous, what? The sun shines, what? And the, who's going to get blessed? And the wicked, are what? I don't know. I don't understand it. Anyway, he says this about the righteous and the wicked. He says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Uh, Tim Keller, um, formerly, I think, of uh, the Redeemer Church in New York, he expands on this idea in his book, Center Church. He says this. He says, most people think of wickedness as disobeying the Ten Commandments as actively breaking the law by doing things like lying or committing adultery. And those things are, of course, wicked. But, uh, but lying and adultery are best understood as the visible tip of the iceberg of wickedness. Below the surface, less visible but no less wicked are things like not feeding the poor when we have the power to do so. Or taking so much income out of the business we own that our employees are paid poorly. Or, and this is in New York context, shoveling snow from our own driveway without even thinking to do the same for our elderly neighbors. In all these ways, we disadvantage others by advantaging ourselves. It just puts a nice little different spin on it. When we think of it, and we think of who it is that was willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage those in need, of course it's Jesus who, Philippians 2, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because as we're working our way through the narrative arc of the scriptures, after the prophets, Jesus 
comes onto the scene. And uh, first of all, what he does is he embodies that prophetic vision of Mishpat. Jesus, we see it in the Gospels, he's constantly moving towards, he seeks out, he hangs out with the vulnerable. He includes them, he brings them in, he invites them into the kingdom. You know, you read something like the Gospel of Luke. Luke particularly has this intentional sort of focus on those aspects of Jesus' mission. It is good news for the poor. The Gospel of Jesus, the person of Jesus, is mishpat for the poor. In Luke uh, 11, one of the many times that Jesus is uh, having a word with the Pharisees, he says this in verse 42. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees! Because you give God a tenth of your mint and your rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. And so for Jesus, justice and love, they're like two sides of the same coin. But of course, we already know that because we've been looking at Micah. We know what Micah said about doing justice and loving mercy. And so Jesus not only cares for and moves towards the vulnerable, but he embodies this vision of mishpat, of tzedakah, of, of justice and righteousness in and through the vision of the kingdom of God. And then it's at the cross that is precisely the moment where in Jesus, God disadvantages himself while he also accomplishes recompense. And the cross becomes this moment where the judge becomes the judged. Or you could say it's at the cross where we've talked about this, you know, these definitions of justice, where both definitions of justice, retributive and restorative justice, perfectly meet together. At the cross, God brings a, a just recompense on human evil, but he provides for it. He becomes it. He embodies uh, mishpat for the poor and takes it all upon himself. Isaiah 53, you know, uh, we all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him. So this is all the vast sin and our wretchedness and stuff, and it's on us. Isaiah 53 says, but the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, you know, the sin of us all, the iniquity of us all. And so what that means is we're no longer carrying it because it's all been laid on him. It's all been laid on Jesus. It was all laid on him as he hung on the cross. And the cross is where God's love and justice just come together in this perfect axis. And, you know, that is the most compelling and most beautiful moment in the whole of human history. We're on the Mount of Crucifixion. Fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flows a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss, kisses a guilty world in love. And so from there, it's down to us as followers of Jesus um, we ourselves have received this loving mishpah. As people here, as followers of Jesus here, we are all recipients of the mishpah, the tzedakah of the cross. 
And we are all recipients of this, this mercy, this grace, whereby the plight of our frail and our mortal and our morally corrupt humanity has not only been recognized, it's been addressed through the life and the death and the resurrection of none other than Jesus. And it is, in effect, our exodus, whereby God has seen the way in which we are enslaved, not to the Egyptians, not to Pharaoh, but to ourselves and to the spirit of the age and to all these mysterious powers that I can't even possibly begin to understand. But, like the exodus, he has provided a way forward for us in and through himself. In and through Jesus, God has freed us from our slavery and our captivity and our bondage, and he has become our righteousness. He has become our justice. And so, having been freed ourselves, the people of Jesus, us, the church, are called to be at the forefront of creating that kind of mishpat, that kind of justice, especially for the vulnerable. As uh, the church, the mandate given to Abraham now lies with us, you know, which is one of the very many reasons why, you know, this whole thing, why you being, just, just by being here, it doesn't make any sense. It's this mystery of the kingdom. It's the mystery of the body of Christ. But why you being here, us being here together as the fellowship of the believers is so incredibly important. It's, it's the fabric of being a kingdom people, a community of faith, a fellowship of believers who together, empowered by the Holy Spirit, filled by the Holy Spirit, will do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with that God. But we'll dig into that over six weeks of summer. You got your flyers? You got your six weeks of summer flyers on your chairs? Uh, you'll be glad to hear that over the six weeks of summer, rather than just listening to me or somebody up here, Endlessly. Uh, we're going to create some space. With slightly shorter services, we want to create some space whereby we can spend some time together. We can be commu community together and hang out together uh, with different things like ice cream and bouncy castles. You'll be glad to know the, the bouncy castle is uh, for both adults and children. Um, so it's a great opportunity to splat some of the kids. Um, so there's all kinds of things going on. But in, uh, in this bit, once we've worship together, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together, um, but, and we'll talk and look at the scriptures, but then we'll create some space for some small groups so we can talk about all of these things. Um, and one of the things that we're going to do over the summer is, is talk and reflect on why, why does church matter? What is it about church? You know, you hear everybody at the moment is like, oh, I'm going to do church from my garden. You know, I'm just, I'm a Christian. I can just follow Jesus. I do it on my own. I don't need that church nonsense. Okay, let's have a, should we have a conversation about that and maybe explore what the Bible actually has to say about the church and why these things might matter? And we can talk about that. But the story of the Bible is that Jesus is the only way out of the plight facing humanity. Not only by what he did on our behalf on the cross, but also by the new and living um, way that he embodied. So that's a bit of a narrative arc of scriptures. There's a whistle-stop tour of the whole Bible uh, in, yeah, 25 minutes. So there you go. Um, 
we are now going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of that very fact, in remembrance of all that Jesus has done. Because we as a community of people, of believers, want to put him at the very center of all that we're doing here. So, Kate. <laughs>